Um, this one is all Florida right here. <laughs> Alabama woman faces felony charges after stealing neighbor's goat and painting it. I love, I love how Florida, the state of Florida has become a meme. Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Paul. With me, as always, is the vice host, Leon Coventry. Leon. Danny. I missed you. We haven't seen each you. other in two weeks. I know. It felt like an eternity. Oh, it's nice to see your face again over there in the lockdown state. I was going to say, is COVID making time go slower? I think so. It might. It might. It's very dangerous. We <laughs> are moving down into the 45 and older category for vaccines, I believe next week. Ah, oh, you guys are ahead of us. Uh, my in-laws got their second jab on Friday and my folks are going to get their second jab tomorrow. All the teachers are vaccinated and all the essential workers are vaccinated. And I guess Arizona didn't like being the uh, fastest growing caseload. So they stepped up in a big way. How are you doing out That's there on, on the, on the coast? Oh, you know, California, we can't get anything right. I still can't figure out. Uh, I know they have like a committee of 60 people that are trying to un- help distribute all of these vaccines, but their their logic and how they do it, it blows my mind. <laughs> it, it, at first it was like, okay, first responders, you know, the the high risk age, which I don't, know, I don't even know what they, they started it. I think 65 and older is where they're at now, but... Mm-hmm. I think they're starting to get even more ridiculous with requirements. You think that they would stick with the age requirements and, and bring those down, but I've heard everything from, well, if if you're cross-eyed uh, and your mother and your brother and her father are not all related, you're a high risk and you need to come in and <laughs> you need to get your your shot now. Like, uh, I don't. Can I see the science that that backs that, or are you just making stuff up? Mm, yeah that's, that's, that's what that's what i feel like california's at but we're <laughs> we're getting there. we're getting there I, I i mean at this point i don't really care what shots but my my 91 year old grandmother did get the two moderna shots so okay. uh so far so good with her and my uncle got them and you know i uh i oversee some senior properties here too mm-hmm. and i've been trying like heck to say, Hey, you know, I got somewhere in the vicinity of five or 600 seniors. I can get vaccinated all at once and I will lend my property to make that happen. Don't we care about these people? These are these, this is the demographic. And by the way, these people have a tough time getting around. I don't know if you know that they're, Mm -hmm. they're trying to vaccinate the ones that have very little ability to get around. So it's, uh, I thought it was a slam dunk. I can't get anybody to call me back. I'm sending emails. I'm, it's crazy. So I think it's just who you, who, you know, but I felt like it was a slam dunk to say, Hey, just you can knock out 500 seniors. I will transport them all, uh, you know, whatever you got to do, but it's not, they're not biting. So uh, it's not like I'm going to, it's not a lucrative thing for me to do. I'm just trying to do the right thing. Oh, you're doing a good work. (laughs) Let's kick this one off. What is your Brown for this episode? I, I am going with Blade and Bow tonight. It's uh, do tell Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Mm-hmm. It's uh, from the Stiltzel Weller Distilling Company, uh, in the home of all good bourbon. Just kidding, but talked about Weller before, right? Kentucky. Uh, this is yeah. Uh, this isn't Weller from the Buffalo Trace. This is a, it's just Stelzer Weller Distilling Company. What's interesting about this one, uh, so it's not the Buffalo Trace family, but what's interesting about this one is they do, just like we were talking about with your ocean that you were trying out, mm-hmm. uh, they have this Solera system uh, where 
they they do this unique way of stacking and blending the whiskey so that the older ones help age the younger ones and it's it's fascinating you gotta i'm not going to take the 30 minutes of the show to describe their process but <laughs> feel free to go to their website and uh, watch their little video on it but it's uh it's actually pretty good i'll i'm not gonna lie the marketing got me they have a cool little key on the bottle and the, the bottle the bottle is a really good looking bottle so i said okay i'm gonna give that one a try never never tried it before and i have seen it on on shelves and bars before but never actually got it but huge fan mm-hmm. okay so all right Good for you, sir. Uh, because we've been bouncing around a lot, I was on a camping trip with General Tizzo and we had a tough time connecting because you had family in town. I am going to stick back with my regular daily drinker, the Johnny Green label. It is the last Johnny Green bottle that I can find without going on a hunt because you can no longer find it at Costco. And so I will lovingly sip the last of my Johnny Green with you, sir. I appreciate this this moment. Before we get into uh, a new episode next week, next week's our St. Patty's episode. So we're going to play with some stuff. I know you got some ideas. I do have some ideas. And I was this, I can't take credit for this. This was the triple B wife that I'm married to. She said, you know, being that it's March, you should do a, you should do a bracket. I said, hell yeah, I should do a bracket. That's a great idea. So I'm going to put together a, a bracket of just a smaller bracket, but a bracket for us to talk about which is, which is better and, and kind of keep that going through the end of the month to match the March Madness basketball tournament. I like it. I like where you're going with it. <laughs> well, it's always controversial when you do lists and rankings and uh, for how many years I've had to listen to them on the radio. Now, now all you people have to That's listen to turn. my opinion. That's right. Our 12 listeners will get the benefit of, what did you want to call it? You want to call it the Brown bracket, the Brown bracket. Yep. Cheers to the Brown bracket, sir. <laughs> and if, if there's any of you 12 listeners that actually want to uh, put in a vote on who should be in the qualifying rounds, you just throw it out there and I'll, I'll make sure they're in the bracket. I'll put up a page on bottleofbrown.com and we can talk about it uh, next episode. Yeah, people can take a look at the visuals and follow along with us next time we talk about it. So we'll put Love something it. up. Uh, it'll probably be something like bottleofbrown.com slash brown bracket. And that'll be the page where we'll put any visuals that we have or any information. If anybody wants to participate, you can also email us at bottleofbrown at gmail.com. You can email Danny, you can email Leon, anything you like. If you want to correct something that we said in the show, or if you want to contribute an idea again, all 12 of you are welcome. We look forward to it. I think now it's time for Brown news. Brown news. Brown news. Well, let's see here. Uh, Article written. By Catherine Durkin Robinson said, what your signature drink says about you. Ah, yes. So I'd love to bounce some of these off. Uh, she, she does prelude the article to say that my twin sons recently turned 21. So um, she wrote this guide. Special time. <laughs> so I, uh, there is a lot on here, but some of them are quite funny. Uh, we'll start right off the bat. American beer, any brand. You'll change your major every other month and blow tuition on DraftKings. <laughs> <laughs> to counter that, European beer, any brand, you'll support underrated Premier League teams, right? Color and flavor, <laughs> even though you're from Florida and speak with a vague with vague foreign accents. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I do. Let's uh, let's jump down to a couple beers that I know I drank when I was in college. PBR. Oh. What do you Precious think PBR is all about? Beer. <laughs> I don't know what the R stands for. You'll post updates about your beard, misinterpret <laughs> Marxist theories, and pretend you appreciate jazz. Or it was cool. <laughs> I find that people that drink PBR that are beyond the age of 21, 22, they, it's like a sense of pride that they bring it out. Like they want you to comment on it. They don't drink it because it's good. Nobody thinks PBR is good, but it says something about you. And uh, when, when you bring it out, it's like, please, please, somebody comment, comment on the fact that I'm drinking PBR. It has now become a statement beer. That is true, isn't it? It is. Say, say one more hipster thing. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take that sriracha shove it up your ass let's see here (laughs) you've got sriracha on your suspenders (laughs) 
craft beer. I love these people. All right, I love it. them. You'll invent an app that will pay off student loans if funding would only come through. Craft beer people are extremely creative. You know, Grigio, you'll write a strongly worded op-ed supporting statewide cycle to work day. So apparently that's the hippie version of the wine family. I don't remember a lot of white wine in university. Is that? Uh, Never. No. Not unless you bought it in that big cannonball glass or a stackable box. Right. Oh, I mean, you you need wine that you can stack in a corner, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me break away from that. There was, <laughs> there was tailgates. Li- living in Columbus. I, I buy, I buy into everything. I'm ready to go. You don't, don't be one of those people that moves to a different city and then say, Oh no, I am, I am not into the local team and I don't like your local activities where I'm from is so much better. Don't be that person. No one likes that person. You won't even like yourself. So when <laughs> I go to places, I just, I dive in. I bought a blue jacket sweater. I went to, I learned how hockey worked and started enjoying hockey, but I did go to Buckeye games because in Columbus, everything lives and dies, but lives and dies by the horseshoe. And if everybody else is going to be talking about that on Monday, I should probably understand what the hell they're talking about. So the tailgate that I used to go to won awards because it was so epic. We had giant inflatable dome. It was a, it was a blast, lots of great food, but they always had a theme and the theme was usually derived from the team that they were playing. And one year in the preseason, they played, uh, they played Cal. So Cal came out and played in Columbus. And so they thought it would be great to have a Catalina, Catalina wine mixer. <laughs> and that was the theme Goddamn of Catalina wine mixer. <laughs> and the theme was almost killed everyone. It was, I mean, we drink beer, we play all the flip cup games. We do all that stuff all the time. And no problem. You drink all day long. Well, this is a West Coast game, which, by the way, you get out there at 3.30, 4 in the morning, get your spot, you start drinking. That game, because Cal people don't watch it till late, that game didn't start till 8 o'clock. So you're drinking cheap boxed wine all day long. Oh. It was a disaster. Bad I planning. mean, people passed out, woke up, passed out again. I mean, it was vomit everywhere, and it was... <laughs> I don't think the recovery from the hangover from that one, it took about a week. So not a fan of the Catalina wine mixer, oh. especially wine at college events. You just don't see it. You what just don't see it. What was the weather like? Was it hot? Was it humid? You get, you get them all uh, through the gambit of the football season because the football season usually starts at the end of August. Right. And Columbus is hot and humid uh, in the summer. So there was even a game I went to, the Akron game, where it had to be upper nineties, which is really hot and humid, humid place like that. Mm. But the, the seats the metal seats were so hot. You couldn't sit on them. You just burn your ass. So we ended up, uh, they ran out of water and the, uh, referee, uh, actually by the, before the end of the first half, one of the referees was pulled out because of heat exhaustion. So it was brutal, brutal hot. Contrastly, by the time they play Michigan at the end of the year, it's so brutal cold. Uh, it's the big snow games that, you know, mm. everyone sees on TV. So it's actually really cool. The season goes through the whole gambit. Uh, but sounds like an adventure. What was the, yeah. what was the Catalina wine mixer day? What was that? It's, er, it's early in the season. So oh. it was, it was pretty warm. It was, it was probably about 85. Oh yeah. Oh. And, unrefri- and a lot of cases unrefrigerated. It was in no way a good idea. So <laughs> what else we got? Okay. Moving on. Hard seltzer, super popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll watch football in a Mahomes Jersey order suicide hot wings and under tip the delivery driver. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, that's, that's dog in the white claw and the truly. So things are good. We just, we, Hey, there's no breaking laws. With the claw, the, I will say though, I'm starting to notice a hard push against them now as if it's almost, too cool and good so people are back oh i'm not that hip i'm i'm going back to whatever beer so i wonder if it's the the pendulum has swung it's just that it's everything's flooded i don't know about you when you go to your stores but it's almost like an entire section now it's just seltzers oh everybody's caught on bud light sure yeah Yeah, well the bud light black cherry seltzer is really good 
Is but it? The rest of them are no. You know, you're a boat. You're a boater. You like to go I'm, out on the I lakes. Do, I'm and, a boating enthusiast. And when it's super hot in the summer, there's uh, hey, there's nothing better than one of those things. They're so refreshing. So I get really, it. They're good for hot weather. That's why. It's, why would you do wine in them? Oof, it's yeah. a cold weather drink. Yeah, not good. Not good. All right, bourbon. Mm. Bourbon says. <laughs> Bourbon says you'll end up divorced with a hundred thousand dollar car. <laughs> Ooh. Ouch. Okay. How, you, how are you doing on that? Are you, you bucking the trend? I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> At least I you get the I car. Have, I don't have the car yet. So I guess I got some time. Uh, scotch. You'll spend your fifties in court for tax evasion. Oh, so there, there totally. you go, bud. hundred <laughs> percent. Jägermeister, I love reading this one. Uh, you'll take up vaping and depression. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. I love that. Okay, so that was well, very uh, well written. Uh, let's see here. A Bloody Mary. You'll sit by the pool wearing sunglasses all day. So true. Yeah, that's pretty. that sounds about right. Bloody Mary is always a hangover cure. That's You don't drink that the night before. You drink that the morning after. Does anybody drink Bloody Marys at night? I don't think so. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't think so. You might drink a screwdriver at night, but mimosas and Bloody Marys are always the morning after. That's the Here's hair of the dog we, drink. It is. It is. That's that's just to get you going. Uh, that's to to warn off all the evil that happened the day the night prior. We don't talk about gin a lot, but I thought this was pretty funny. <laughs> You'll. Gin, you'll get stuck at an over 40 and single table during the funeral receptions and often go home with your third cousin. <laughs> so that's funny to me because I don't oh. associate I don't associate gin with hillbilly, I guess. That that sounds hillbilly to me. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I don't, feel like I don't know anybody that drinks gin. Gin's kind of one of those gin like, snobby. Like Ryan Reynolds does mix gin. That's yeah. Cool. And I like I like a gin and tonic every once in a while. I used to like it a lot. I used to like Bombay, but the uh, I just never associated with that. So I thought it was funny, but I don't. I think I would have probably put that more on the the PBR side than I would have with the gin. I suppose side, if we're but. talking about uh, college kids who just turned twenty one, if you're twenty one and drinking gin, then yeah, maybe you're maybe you're ahead of the curve. I'm going to close it out with the Mad Dog, the Mad oh, Dog twenty. Yes, the Mad Dog twenty twenty says you'll talk shit at sporting events and that's it <laughs> very cool that's man. very cool that's what your signature drink says about you so so just right. know whatever you're drinking people are judging you are there any drinks of those on your list okay uh, i got two things here i got one it's up on the screen now the price of a beer around the world got the story from the visualcapitalist.com how much does a beer cost in your country Qatar has the highest average beer price at $11.26. Which is interesting because I didn't think you could even drink there. Is that why? Yeah, I don't know. It's well, yeah, I mean, I'm hopefully one of our 12 can, can write in and tell us a little bit more about Qatar as to why in Doha you can even get a beer, let alone an eleven dollar beer. Maybe it's at the airport. Well, in Muslim primary states where you know that's the the dominant culture religion a lot of times it's you can't find a drink it's like trying yeah. to find beef in in india yeah maybe you can drink something out of mead or something but whatever uh doha qatar not the place to go to buy a beer with your buddies to find the cheapest beers you have to go to south africa ukraine or argentina interesting coming in below two dollars now ukraine i'm not surprised south africa is interesting uh argentina is not what i would think on the list because um my wife and I are very big Malbec drinkers. So we thought Argentina was wine country. Yeah, it Maybe is. That's why yeah. the beer is cheap because everybody's drinking wine. Supply and demand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is Croatia on this list? I'm trying to look for it here. Croatia. I don't see it yet. But considering that it's probably in one of those Baltic states you were talking about, mm. good story about Croatia. Got off the cruise ship. Me and dad went in town. We love drinking the local beer. That's the fun part. Mm -hmm. we, we go in there. We sit down at the bar and she comes out clearly we're american and she's like you want beer and we're like yes and she's like what kind and we're like um well what do you have small and large okay we'll have large <laughs> <laughs> 
large <laughs> and they literally had two beers small and large it was like that scene in my cousin Vinny. Mm-hmm. breakfast yeah. you think? sure sure never actually seen a grit before <laughs> so they've got sarajevo they've got uh north macedonia They've got Vienna, Budapest, and Prague. And I have a little uh, short tidbit for for those of you beer nerds out there. When I was in Prague with uh, Mr. Jones and another member who we'd like to have on the podcast, we had Czechvar, also known locally as Budvar, which according to local legend is the original recipe for Budweiser. I heard that and he stole it, right? He stole it or he had it there rightfully and took it with him. Uh, But what we drink now today is a bastardized version of the original recipe, which followed Ryan Heitzkabot. But if you go to Czech Republic and you ask for a Czech var or a Budvar, it's in that kind of script, that brush script font like Budweiser is, but it doesn't have any of the black and white uh, badging on the back and it doesn't have the the red square, but it is a white label with red cursive writing. So there are some elements of the two of them. And, you know, Budweiser is so big now that they probably went after him for uh, patent infringement and whatever, but allegedly, and I I'll take anybody that wants to challenge this check far is Budweiser. So if you're looking, if you're, if you're one of those purists that wants to go back to the old country, go back to Prague or anywhere in Eastern Europe, I imagine you can get it. Is, is that where Pil, Pilsner or Kell comes from? Perhaps. That Prague? That's a good question. I don't know. That's one That's one of my favorites. Huh? There were look tons, at of, Czech tons Republic. of cheap beer. In, yeah, Czech Republic. So it's two, yep. 249 in Czech Republic. So it's it's on the lower end of the scale. Madrid, Spain is 274. And yet right over the border in Portugal, it's twice as much. No idea why, but apparently the Portuguese uh, like their beer a lot more than the Spanish do. Belgian... No, no, I think you're right. I, yeah. I've been to Lisbon quite a few times in the last 10 years, yeah. and they don't drink beer. Really? They drink, no, it's wine, huge wine state. That's where port comes from. Yeah. Yeah, so much wine. So I just don't think anybody drinks it, so it's expensive. Hmm. Odd. So I think that, that follows your Argentina model. Sorry, continue. Well, <clears throat> where, where I was going with this is Belgium is 347 which strikes me as odd because Belgian beer here is always so expensive. So that's got to be import duties, which is something that we'll, we'll touch on uh, maybe in a future segment. Uh, Mexico is 446. I don't know where in Mexico. Yeah. We've never dealt with that kind of pricing. No. So we always go to Northern Mexico. So maybe it's down in the Yucatan. Uh, and uh-huh. then in Washington, DC, which is what they called the United States in this chart was 475 average price for a beer. Or you can go up north to the Great White North, and in Ottawa, three ninety six is the average beer. So mm. visualcapitalist.com, how much does a beer cost in your country, is the infographic. It's, uh, it's colorful. It's not every culture is represented. Most of Africa is grayed out. None of Scandinavia is, is open, and of course, the Midwest is pretty much blacked out. And I'm a little disappointed, I got to say, why is Australia not on the list? Can you see that? Can you see that Australia's dark? <laughs> Oh, we got some. I don't want to play that game. Author bias is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's well. I would, I would think Australia would be one of the highest. Yeah, I'm calling bullshit on that. Okay, uh, final bit piece of brown news: a new class of performance beers is taking a page from Gatorade. This is from Bloomberg.com. Breweries are adding electrolytes to help the body dehydrate less while having a cold one. Uh, Before I get into the details of the article, Leon, is this bullshit is it bullshit that they do it or is it bullshit that they should be doing it because i would say i'm for this plan yes i am for this plan do you believe in the science i do i do you know it could be placebo they put in there but i'll, I'll take i'll take anything they uh, put in there to make me feel better the next day I, I this is this is true innovation when i'm thinking about it i don't need my mountains to turn blue uh, and i don't need something to to be brewed colder and i don't care about you know the can size i I want i want some electrolytes in there that my head doesn't hurt so bad the next day that's brilliant i hope they figure this one out master it 
The idea of alcohol coinciding with an athlete's regimen might seem counterintuitive, and it certainly shouldn't replace water. But breweries have been incorporating electrolytes and even buckwheat and bee pollen to ameliorate dehydrating damage to the body. The market is still small. The Brewers Association estimates that performance beer constituted 1% of the craft beer market, which itself is 13% of the total market. But brewers say there are signs of growth. Some appeal to millennials who want to consume fewer calories and might put down their hard seltzer for a light beer with flavor. Ding, 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 ding. I love it. That's great. Uh, some notable brands here. Zealous Beer Company called The Weekender, which is a German-style lager. Harpoon Brewery, Rec League. I've great. had that. It's not bad. Great can. Oh, yeah. Super. Looks like, uh, what's that Will Ferrell movie? <laughs> All-Star. What was it? I was going to say it looks like Dodgeball. It does but... kind of look like Dodgeball. That's true. That's true. Well done. Uh, Avery Brewing Pacer IPA, 100 calories, 4.5%. Most mm. of these look like they're session beers. Uh, Mispillion River Brewing Company, War Possum. Now, that's a badass metal can. Yeah. Uh, this is interesting here. Boulevard Easy Sport, dubbed a Rally Ale. 99 calories, 4.1%. So we're, we're getting the sense that electrolytes just means low alcohol. And if it's low alcohol, you're probably not going to be as hungover, which means you're not going to be, where are, the, where are the electrolytes come in? You're just drinking less. Right. Oh, uh, that's, well, you know, I hope they continue with this, this plan to make uh, alcohol not hit you so bad the next day. I'm all for it. Yeah, all you, wanna... they need, Hey, put some vitamin C in and, you know, some fish oil in there, like make me feel better after this. Yeah, we all want to dance all night and never have to go home. <laughs> all right, so that's brown news. Brown news. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Bottle of Brown. We're going to get into headlines. Oh, this is my favorite this part one? now. You ready for uh, this one? It's a good week. I can tell you've been excited about this. <laughs> I'm excited to hear them. <laughs> I know some really good headlines this week. Uh, actually, some of them are left over from last week. So we have the compound effect of last week and this week. Uh, from WSVN.com, 7 News, Miami. This one's coming out of Baldwin County, Alabama. Police. Oh, Florida. Alabama woman faced felony charge after stealing neighbor's goat and painting it. As people do. A Gulf Shores woman was arrested on an animal cruelty charge after officials say she took her neighbor's goat and painted it without permission. Erica Farmer, 34, was arrested for the crime. Farmer also faces a theft of property second charge. According to officials, the theft of any livestock in the state of Alabama falls under the felony guideline. Farmer's bond set at $6,000. Deputies say Farmer removed the goat from her neighbor's property and brought it to her house to show her child. They say at some point she decided to paint the animal and post the photos on social media. They say when the... Pause for humor. <laughs> they say when the goat's owner discovered the animal was missing, they called a different neighbor to ask if they had seen the goat. And at that time, the neighbor told them photos of the painted animal had been posted on social media. The goat's owner called authorities. Deputies say the goat was still at the suspect's house when deputies arrived. Listen, I'm on team goat painting lady. Let, there's something that goat did. That goat did some fucked up shit. And I... I don't know what it did to her, but I'm sure it had it coming. If you're a fan you of the podcast, you know that we're no fan of goats. Yeah. <laughs> Free Erica Farmer. Hashtag. Yes. Respect this woman. She's doing God's work. No, I think, <laughs> I think absolutely that I got to, I, I want to see the paint job. Don't you like reading this? The article doesn't show a picture of the goat. I, it just shows her about that's why I want to get to that. I, I'd be curious about the goat, but WSVN.com slash news slash us world slash police, Alabama woman face felony charge after stealing neighbor's goat and painting it. The look on her face is fuck. Yeah, I did. Oh, it's the best face. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. I did it. I yeah. did it. And I'm proud yeah. of it. Yeah. I painted the goat. You got nothing that on me. You keep these orange coveralls because I'm going to paint a goat again. I want to play Never Have I Ever with this woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, never have I ever painted a goat. Oh, it's perfect. I love it. All right, moving on. 
from CNN, the news that brings you James Earl Jones's voice. This is CNN. CNN.com slash 2021 slash 01 slash 29 slash Australia slash Wombat Poop Cubes International. I can't even finish the URL. <laughs> Why do wombats poop cubes? Scientists may finally have the answer. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, this creature did something wrong to the creators. And they that was the curse that was put on the wombat. You we will bust them. That's our custom. Go wombats. <laughs> For years, scientists have been wondering why wombat poop is cube-shaped. Yes, really. Now they say that they've got to the bottom of the mystery. Bare-nosed wombats or common wombats can be found in the woodlands of hilly landscapes in south southeastern Australia and Tasmania. The furry marsupials are renowned for producing distinctive cuboid poop, which researchers believe they then disperse tactically in order to communicate with one another. Dude, where was this in college? We could have had a wombat night. Oh, I would have totally done a project on this. Can you imagine Pappert? He'd be so psyched to learn oh, about the cube. Mr. Pappert. Cube poop. Yes. Lovely man. Oh. Uh, so here's the fun part. Somebody got paid for this. Using yes. laboratory testing and mathematical models, a team of researchers found there are two stiff and two flexible areas around the circumference of the wombat intestine. The intestine at 33 feet long is around 10 times the length of a wombat's body. This ability to form relatively uniform, clean-cut feces is unique in the animal kingdom, so saith Scott Carver, a wildlife ecologist from the University of Tasmania. <clears throat> they place these feces at prominent points in their home range, such as around a rock or a log, to communicate with each other. Our research found that these cubes are formed within the last 17% of the colon intestine. Dude's doing his job. But then they're saying that they use these cubes for communication. So yeah. are they are they flexing their sphincters? And they're like, man, did you see Jim? He he should have hexagon. <laughs> yeah, I saw it. I saw it. He's he's having a bad day. Do you remember the thrifty drugstore chain? Once upon a time, I think they got bought up by Rite Aid when we were kids. Do you remember that? Yeah, great ice cream. With the cylinder ice cream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know exactly where I'm going with this. That's all I could think yeah. about. I, I'm looking at this picture of a solid cube poop, and all I can think about is thrifty ice cream. <laughs> Those perfect cylinder scoops. They were. They were, that was I went to Thrifty only for ice cream. That's like what some, I some remember things about. Are alien. It. You know, like why do they get Pringles all the same? Thrifty ice cream was always the same. Wombat's poop. Always uh, the same. I'm, you know who I miss in a story like this is Mitch Hedberg. Because he, he, he would add so much fun with this. I would have loved to toss that one to him and he would just, just slam dunk it. Give me yeah, the I best impression. I, I imagine him saying something like a wombat is the only Minecraft accurate animal. <laughs> <laughs> If you're gonna, right, let's get into our number one headline for the night. <clears throat> okay. Theconversation.com. Only 2% of conversations end when we want them to. Here's why that's a cause for celebration. Everyone's familiar with the sensation of being trapped in a conversation for too long, be that over the garden fence or by the office water cooler. On the other end of the spectrum, we've also experienced conversations that seem to end prematurely leaving us dissatisfied and maybe even a little hurt. Now, a Harvard study, yes, Cambridge, Harvard, Veritas, a Harvard study has found that this conversational disappointment may in fact be incredibly common, involving 992 participants taking part in two-way discussions. The study found that less than 2% of conversations ended when both partners wanted them to. This figure was remarkably stable, irrespective of whether people were talking to a stranger or a lover. The authors of the study believe this discrepancy is the result of a classic coordination problem, quote unquote, arising because people tend to hide their true desires, including when they want a conversation to end in an effort to avoid being rude. 
but our experience and conversation analysis would add that ending conversations elegantly is an elaborate social skill with many complex moves akin to a final pirouette in a dance or the crescendo in a piece of music. That means many conversations overrun for the sake of politeness and social solidarity, reaching a compromise that may suit neither party, but which crucially and admirably avoids offense. Thoughts. I would have never thought about this in this way. So I actually think it's a really cool perspective on it. And it's absolutely right. It, if you go, if you go through any of your daily conversations, you're going to run into this, but there's one person that I, I used to work with where I really started to recognize this. Uh, One of my old bosses, wonderful woman. She had her skill was definitely around the world of service. Top, top of the top of her world on that. And, and, and I would, and English actually wasn't her first language speaks it better than most people, but it wasn't her first language. And I thought it was a cultural thing, but she figured this out early on that she just ends the conversation when it's over. Like she senses it. Like there's no more useful information coming out. And she, she says, okay, bye-bye then. And, and okay. Okay. You know, like at first I found it very off-putting because of that, that last line you read where it's all about uh, you know, the social politeness of it. But how much more polite did I find it when she was like, let's not just, you know, drug on here about nothing. Let's let's end this conversation. We we said what we had to say and and I and I appreciate it. And she was always consistent with it. So hey, I think I think it's there's a lot of truth to this. And uh I'm gonna keep my eye out for it now. I don't know about how do you feel about it? I thought it was spot on. I hear what you're saying. It's like when you're two cars enter an intersection and one of them's got to turn and the other one's got to turn. It's like, well, who's going to go? And you're so happy when somebody just does it because that kind of half, that half going is so much more annoying than the person that just goes right in front of you. Cause it's over. You can go on with your life. What I thought about when I was reading this is if you listen to people that have regular colloquial conversations, now I'm not talking somebody that you haven't spoken to in months, you're going to have a deep what's going on with you. Here's what's going on with me conversation, but I'm talking regular conversations over the telephone for people you talk to every day. How do you end that conversation? Because you're not doing it to convey information. You just talked to the person yesterday. You kind of get into, oh, all right. Um, yeah. So, you know, and you hear these little, I need to get out of here aphorisms from people that you talk to every day. And that's what I thought about. I thought about the exact same thing of how do you end a conversation without being mean or, or sounding rude. And it's a thing. And so they got things here like dancing dialogue. And um, when you're looking at somebody, you know, like we are now, you can kind of tell body language. You can go, this person's not interested. Let's cut this off. Let's move on with our lives. But when you're in an audio only medium, like a telephone, how do you know? How do you know when the person wants to keep talking? So you kind of got to wait for that long silence to say, all right, they're not going to fill that void. Or you got to go, well, I got to go. Yep. Well, that's, I think, why texting is so popular. It's it's on your schedule. It's to the point. I remember one of the first times I ever texted. It was in a club and it was on a flip phone. And, you know, you had to push the numbers as many times to get to the letter you're looking for. And I thought, no way is this going to catch on because it was so difficult to do it to say so little. But I prefer texting over just about anything now because it's direct to the point and it's on my timetable. So I get it. And if you have something to say, the conversation can go on as long as it has to or it doesn't Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the text message is by participation only. There's no active engagement. That's right. I thought this was very interesting. It was a study by Harvard. Uh, To end a conversation, a social action is often used to avoid making a faux pas. These social actions are called closing routines during which speakers confirm to each other that they're truly done saying anyway, or all right. And that's supposed to be a cue to the other person to go, yeah, you know, I got to go too. And then it ends the conversation. But if you are the person that doesn't pick up on the closing routine, then the conversation just keeps going. And I wonder if it starts to foment resentment on the other person. Like I just gave you a closing routine. Stop it. 
<laughs> I'm going to pretend my battery's dying or I'm going to say that the kids are here. Or, Take this you know, social cue. Yeah. I and mean, then you got to find an excuse. Ah, oh, the oven's on fire. Yeah. It's like, we're done talking. I'll talk to you again. This is not the last time we're going to speak to each other. Oh my God. That reminds me. Did you, have you seen that? <laughs> Have you seen that Saturday Night Live sketch way back in the day? I want to say it was with Juliana Margulies. I think it was. And it was Will Ferrell. And she was like on the phone and she's like trying to like get off. She, she's like signaling to Will Ferrell, who's the husband. Hey, uh, uh, can you help me get off? Help me get off. And he's like, uh, what, what do you want me to say? I, I don't know. Say something. And he's like, is that you on the phone again, bitch? <laughs> and she just hangs up and I still cry. And I, <laughs> I did it once to my wife. And she was so mad at me. She didn't get the joke. She didn't understand why I would say that. Oh, my God. I was so good. Oh, well, Triple B needs context, man. She doesn't live the life that you've led. <laughs> yeah, I'll close this one out with the Harvard research exposes a fascinating aspect of our conversational behavior, but its findings should not lead us to regard the majority of our conversations as interminable drags or brutally shortened chats. Next time you're having a conversation with a loved one or even a stranger, when it comes to the end, do both of you a favor, cut it and run. Yeah, I'm actually interested something more formal hasn't come along because, you know, 90, what did it say, 98, 92, how many percent? Yeah, 98% of these end this way. We haven't figured this one out yet. We're, we're too polite. I don't know. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into our parenting segment. I got two quick ones on parenting so we can wrap this one up for the evening. Um, this one, I didn't know how to handle. So we might delve into some controversy here with our magic 12, but um, I mean, it's full disclosure here. I'm not a fan of banning books at all. So I'm a little bummed with the idea of it being no longer published as opposed to putting a very heavy disclaimer in the front of the book that acknowledges this is a product of its time and times have changed. But uh, this is in regard to Dr. Seuss, for those of you paying attention. Six Dr. Seuss books will not be published for racist images. Now, racism is bad. Full stop. Six Dr. Seuss books, including And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street and If I Ran the Zoo will stop being published because of racist and insensitive imagery. The business that preserves and protects the author's legacy uh, said Tuesday, these books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. Dr. Seuss enterprises told the associated press in a statement that coincided with the late author and illustrator's birthday. Ceasing sales of these books is only part of our commitment and our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss's enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities and families. And so they have, um, Mostly these are images of racial stereotypes from early in the century, uh, things that are culturally insensitive, <clears throat> usually caricatures, things that were considered completely normal at the time, although they were insensitive back then. So it's not, it's not something that's, that's changed at all. It's like, this was wrong back then. It's just the people didn't, the people who were in charge didn't throw light on it. So sunlight is the best disinfectant, I think. So the fact that you're bringing it out in the open is a good thing. I don't know that the idea of canceling it is, is good. Um, but again, you could probably find these books on a used bookshelf. You can probably get digital versions of them that are old. You know, if, if you're a fan of Dr. Seuss and you don't have the complete, because the guy's dead. If you're a fan of Dr. Seuss and you don't have his complete works by now, sorry, snooze you lose. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I will tread lightly because it's a very sensitive subject and a very sensitive topic in general uh, right now. And I'm not qualified. I'll openly admit I'm not qualified to make any type of political statement on one way or another on what's right and what's wrong. But I 100% agree with you on banning books um, is is wrong. And multiple emotions go through me as a parent, right? Because I grew up with Dr. Seuss, right? So your first, your first reaction is, uh, you know, 
you got to be kidding me. Like now Dr. Seuss is under attack. Right. Uh, and this is, this is ridiculous. Now this isn't other people or other organizations or social media or trollers doing this. This is this company's doing it, right? This is Dr. Seuss enterprise. The owner, is the, yeah, the, the owner is proactively saying we do not want this out there anymore. Right. So if that's the case, you know, more power to him. He's recognized uh, things that are, uh, that he feels is insensitive and and not in line with you know, the, what what society is shedding light on. I thought that was a really great description of it, on on, on putting the sunlight on it. With that with that being said, um, and, and maybe uh, again, I, I don't see it as that deep. When I was that kid, I didn't see it as something. You know, I'm reading about. Uh, a cat in a hat. I'm reading about silly things. These are words that sound alike and look alike and help me read. You know, I, I don't know that I took my social cues from Dr. Seuss and, you know, what I was, what, I don't know that he made me the man that I am today. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think it's a story to cause uproar. I think it's a, a story to, uh, to to make the people on one side of the fence very upset that you know this change is happening on this level. I mean, obviously they're picking on Dr. Seuss because or Dr. Seuss's books because of what's going on in the world right now and how fast change is happening, which is good, right? Change is well well beyond uh, long overdue. I would I will say and again i'm trying not to go too far into any political one side or the other but i will say that change has to happen and change hurts uh but uh, change happening too fast is also a bad thing too i don't know what where this falls uh, and uh i'm just really uh, i'm luckily for me none of those books books even ring true in my head and I have a child and I don't know that I've read any of those. Maybe the Mulberry one. I'm, I'm not sure if I have, I, I can't even remember it. it, but you know, I'd, I'd be crushed if it was green eggs and ham, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so part of it is it's because we're talking about children's literature. Um, you could certainly make the argument that there is something under the surface or subconscious or subliminal, but again, kids don't get it. Like I watch, Pixar movies and it's a completely different movie to me than it is to my kids. And I watch things like big again, and I've commented on this before in a previous episode of the podcast, when you watch big at 13 and you watch big at 30, it's two different movies. Mm -hmm. So the idea of banning books because of their exposure to children, again, you're looking at that through an adult lens and as an adult, yeah, that's horrible. But to a kid, now, one of the things they reference here is Babar, which is about the elephant. And so Babar is seen to possibly endorse or tolerate colonialism. Yeah, that's wrong. And as an adult, I know what colonialism is, and I know that colonialism is bad. I'm not interested in talking about the merits of colonialism. But as a kid, he was an elephant that wore a green suit. That's awesome. Right. right. So I, I'm... Uh, and and this the idea of Curious George as uh, the premise of a white man bringing home a monkey from Africa. As an adult, I understand the nuance of that argument, and I understand the symbolism of it. As an adult, my kids love a monkey that does curious things. It reminds them of their own curiosity. So what I want to be wary of when we talk about these things with our kids is I don't think children understand sociological nuance of these kinds of themes. So you can talk to them about what you can learn from the Lorax or the star-bellied sneeches without saying, yeah, that's a Chinaman. No, there is no such thing as a Chinaman. And that's the, that's a horrible image that was a caricature of the day. It's not okay. It's not okay. Then it's not okay now, but the themes of the story. And uh, I don't agree with pulling cigarettes out of ET. I don't like any of that. I don't like, I don't like any kind of, of censorship or, whitewashing, but I'm okay with the disclaimer that says this is a product of its day and we should be aware that times change, just like you're saying. So it was okay. Then it's not okay. Then it's not okay now, but the book itself has themes that are worthy of redemption. Well, it's interesting. Uh, when I was growing up, oh God, I wouldn't say I was growing up, but I would say at least it had to be 20, 30 years ago. 
maybe it was, I don't know. The, the Lorax was banned in many states. Uh, I think Oregon was one of them because the Lorax was shedding a bad light on loggers, you mm. know, and that was, right? a, was hurting jobs. That is how they make money in that area. That is an honest living. And, and they felt that the Lorax was, you know, poo-pooing that. You could definitely, as an adult, pick up on that theme that's going through there. But as a kid, no way. No way did I pick up on that. I was reading about this really greedy guy, you know, and and his greed, you know, ended up killing the whole forest. I, I didn't pick up on, you know, the third, fourth, and fifth levels of the story that, you know, people like, you know, that are out there overanalyzing Dr. Seuss books think that they're doing i i just i guess i'm naive maybe i'm naive i just think he's a he's a children's writer and i i don't think that there was that much maybe with a lorax but there's not that much depth in what he was writing he certainly didn't didn't feel like that that's what he was trying to convey we're we're old we've lived a life we've had a lot of experiences and we've had deep educational opportunities and we're parents and we've watched little beings grow up. So we're very well aware of this stuff. And, and you read this article and you go, absolutely. They're right. So were you going to take Dr. Seuss away from your kids? Like, no, because it, I remember it bringing me joy. So what I want to do is I want to bring my children the same joy that I felt only now, maybe I'll be a little bit more cognizant of, you know, that's wrong. Or if they ask, yeah, I'll correct it. No, that's not okay. You know, when you're watching old Disney cartoons from the 30s and 40s, you say, why are all the kids hanging out with a monkey? Do you want to have that conversation with an eight-year-old? Or do you want to wait until they're older and then point it out to them and go, I never knew that. You were a kid. We were perfectly happy letting you live in your ignorance because you should have that kind of education when you're older. Now, what I believe very strongly in on this particular topic, and I'll, I'll close my thoughts on it, is something that Dennis Leary said in his stand-up for a while. He said, racism is taught. You're not born with it. I got a two-year-old. You know what he hates? Naps. End of list. Right. So if you're worried about whether or not a book is indoctrinating your children, it's not. It's the parent that's reading the book to them. Yeah. And the parent often is explaining, <laughs> explaining what it is uh, and what the book means and, and their interpretation of it. So, yeah. So if the parent likes that there's a culturally insensitive caricature and they say, yeah, that's the way it is. Well, that's them doing it to the kids. If you remove that content, that's not going to remove the parent. The parent will just find something else. So I don't, I don't yeah. agree with the idea of pulling books, but yeah, they're not our books. Let them pull them. Yep. Yep. They weren't, they weren't forced. This was voluntary on their side and, you know, so be it. I mean, it's only a story because it, it riles people up, you know, so fine. We'll close out our episode this week with something that's near and dear to my heart. So the story is from news.umichigan.edu. Sleep is vital to associating emotion with memory, according to this University of Michigan story. When you slip into sleep, it's easy to imagine that your brain shuts down, but University of Michigan research suggests that groups of neurons activated during prior learning keep humming, tattooing memories into your brain. University of Michigan researchers have been studying how memories associated with a specific sensory event are formed and stored in mice. In a study conducted prior to the coronavirus pandemic and recently published in Nature Communications, the researchers examined how a fearful memory formed in relation to a specific visual stimulus. Now researchers have the tools to genetically tag cells that are activated by an experience during a specific window of time. Focusing on a specific set of neurons in the primary visual cortex, Aton, who's the study's founder and the study's lead author, graduate student Brittany Clausen created a visual memory test. They showed a group of mice, a neutral image and expressed genes in the visual cortex neurons activated by the image. The study goes on to say that memory is affected by your ability to sleep. And the basic gist of it is it's a long article. So if you want to read it, by all means, um, the basic gist of it that I got was 
The same way that you defrag a hard drive, that's what your brain's doing when you sleep. So your body shuts down. You no longer have to worry about muscle coordination and bodily fluids and all that. The only thing you really got to worry about is the heart pumps, the lungs work, and then your brain takes all that extra processing capacity and figures out what you did that day. And so if you don't sleep enough, you're doing serious damage to yourself. Does the quality of sleep you think have anything to do with it as well? It's a good question. I would say yes. Uh, but I haven't seen anything in the article yet. Cause I only skimmed it before we started talking about it. Yeah. Cause I, I, you hear all these, these different studies about things that affect your memory, you know, like eat, eat these, eat these, these magical plants are going to make you remember things better or, or take this magical powder and mix that in your drink and your memory will be better or play this game or this app and it'll make your, your neurons fire like they've never fired before. So I, I would, I would assume that if, honestly, I don't know that this is a groundbreaking article. Everyone realizes that you do better when you sleep and I can understand how maybe making memories is part of that. So what they're saying here is, uh, the researchers found that when they disrupted sleep after they showed the subjects an image and had given them a mild foot shock, there was no fear associated with the visual stimulus. Those with unmanipulated sleep learned to fear the specific visual stimulus that had been paired with the foot shock. And so the idea is they showed them a picture and then they shocked their foot and then they let them sleep and the brain <laughs> wired the picture and the shock kind of a, like Pavlov's dog. Right. And mm -hmm. so what they're saying is when you manipulate sleep, the brain isn't allowed to make that connection. Now from an evolutionary standpoint, yeah, you sleep in order to know, don't do that again. Uh, but later on in the article, it says their findings could have implications for how anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder are understood. So what I'm wondering now, if you don't make a connection that that is bad, whatever it is, your body's telling you it's bad, but you don't know why. And maybe that's contributing to very stressful situations such as anxiety or post-traumatic stress. Yeah, maybe. And I, I found this fascinating because generalized anxiety disorder is fear of the future. Why are you afraid? The future hasn't happened yet. Just wait for the future to show up and then deal with it then. But you can't say that to a person who has chronic anxiety. They're always worried about what's going to happen. There's always a boogeyman. There's always a big bad. There's always something around the corner. And that's also what you deal with in subjects that have PTSD is there's always something coming and they don't know where it is and they don't know how to handle it. So the idea behind this study is if you have a visual cue that goes along with, I don't like this. If you give yourself time to sleep, your brain connects those neurons to say, the next time you see this run, because as we know uh, from Gallagher, who's one of my favorite standups, despite <laughs> how his career trailed off and we don't even know where he is right now. We're not descendant from the guy that took on the T-Rex. We're descended from the little bitty quick fuckers that got back to the cave. So if you don't understand a stimulus and react to it, you're going to die. So I, as a, as a parent, this was interesting to me specifically as we're talking about our friend, if the baby's doing something and you know that next time the baby does something, I need to do this and you're not sleeping. Next time the baby does that, you may not know to do this to counteract it. So in that particular oh. case, sleep is critical. Well, now that you're saying that, I mean, I think if if I flip my comments on its head and go the other direction with it of things that align with what this thing is saying, you know, there's there's always these sayings that say, you know, with women quickly forget how bad labor was or how bad being pregnant was. What did they forget that because they didn't sleep very well during that period or, and since we're still talking about babies or do babies sleep that much because they have to remember and make these connections more than any, the, any other point in your life, because you're learning so much and you have to, you have to remember it. I mean, toddlers sleep constantly and I'm always amazed what my daughter can memorize overnight. You know, how did you just learn these 400 new words? I can't even remember anything. So Hey, maybe, maybe there is a pretty strong correlation there. 
the general consensus of the article was good sleep is necessary, uh, whether or not you have a fear stimulus. So let's let's close on that as our parenting segment. Anyway, man, that wraps it up for us. It was good we're to done see already? You again, man. Yeah, we're done already. Unless you got something else you want to talk about. You want to throw something in? No, I just, I'm sad. I'm sad it's over already. Well, it was a pleasure. Would, would you, uh, let me see how much left of the green you got. Mm. I feel, can we play taps as you drink the, the final sip out of that glass? <laughs> oh, you are a good, good man, Johnny. <laughs> and with that, let's close this one out. <laughs> Get it and get it. Get it and get it. All right. Talk to you next week. See you next time, brother. This place is dead anyway, man. <laughs>